Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, also on the NSN app on your phone as well. Coming to you from Israel, Israel National News slash radio on Arutz Sheva around the world. And welcome to another Thursday morning of a political talk. And we never thought we'd get here at least months ago when we were talking about it. Never thought we'd get to the eve of the Iowa caucuses, to the eve of the New Hampshire primary, with Donald Trump leading in every single poll. And don't think what I'm saying, every single poll. I mean literally every single poll. If you look over the last week, the only polls, the only polls that have come out that don't have Donald Trump leading is the Minnesota Republican Presidential Caucus poll by the Star Tribune from Sunday, January 24th, where uh, Rubio is leading by two points, and the Texas Republican primary CBS News poll, where Cruz is leading by 15 points, which is kind of, you know, Cruz leading in his own state. Donald Trump is leading everywhere. What will happen on Iowa caucus night? What will happen in the New Hampshire primary? It's hard to say. There's been a lot of surprises. Think of Howard Dean. Think of all kinds of people who have. Think of Rick Santorum. Think of all kinds of candidates who have won Iowa and then faltered afterward or not won Iowa when they were supposed to win Iowa. So we're going to unpack it all this morning. We're going to go to a prominent Republican political consultant as well as a reporter on the ground in New Hampshire to talk all about Republican primary politics. I don't want to ignore the Democrats, but right now the Republican race is just too exciting with Donald Trump and there's a debate tonight. Obviously he's skipping that and we're going to get into that as we have a great edition of Spin Class. But first and foremost, we have to thank our sponsor, the S4 Group, S4GRP.com. And S4 is a new sponsor for 2016. They have a very informative weekly newsletter on politics and policy. I urge you to subscribe at S4GRP.com. Scroll down. You'll find it. And a lot of the stuff that we stay here, uh, as well as items on a state and more local level, industry specific and the like, uh, you'll very much enjoy that newsletter. I want to welcome back to the program Jessica Proud from the November team, a crisis communications and political specialist, a spokesman for the New York State Republican Party, although nothing she says here is an official, I would say, I'll, I'll take license to say that's not an official statement on behalf of the New York Republican Party, speaking in her capacity as a political consultant. Jessica, welcome back to Spin Class. Thanks, Michael. Great to be with you. So I know there's so much to talk about, but one thing that I didn't intro, and I think it's worth noting, uh, is Albany-specific, but I think it's something that is just, is just shocking. So, And I, I know that you guys and you and your firm and others have been speaking about it, and it's been in the editorial pages this week, so I just want to get into it really, really quickly, is with all the corruption, with all the cesspool, with all the, uh, with all the convictions going on in Albany, the state ethics watchdog called Jacob has chosen not to go ahead and target lawmakers, not to go ahead and target lobbyists, not to go ahead and target people who have actually point, point the finger with the history of corruption. They've decided to go after public relations people and journalists and the free flow of information. Explain to the public what is going on here and why is Albany continue to be the theater of the absurd? 
Thanks, Michael. I mean, this is really an important topic that I think everyone should be outraged about. And I remember when my partner and I first uh, read about the proposed uh, rule change a few weeks ago, we were incredulous, thinking, like, how can this be real? Uh, It's important for people to understand the distinction that what they're trying to do is change the definition of who is a lobbyist and basically drive a wedge between anyone that speaks to the press, the source, and a reporter. And, you know, they've since kind of changed that a little bit. I think they're kind of making it now they're saying just editorial board members, which is ridiculous because many uh, members of the editorial board are also uh, straight reporters. So um, I don't think they actually know what they're doing here. I think this was you know, really derived from the governor's office. I would like to know what he has to say about it. And I think it's just a move designed to keep tabs on who's working on what projects. Look, as a PR person, I personally don't do lobbying. And if I'm not disclosing to my to the press who my clients are, then I'm not doing my job. You know, our goal is to is to get press and you're quoted places. So it really is such a ridiculous um, thing that they did, and they did it through an advisory opinion, which allowed them to circumvent any public comment period. So we felt very strongly that you know there should be attention on this. We sent a letter back to reporters uh, a few weeks ago to really uh, try to, to you know gain some some public opinion on it, which is what we do. And um, and now they're starting to weigh in. And of course, uh, when they passed the rule the other day. But I don't think this will hold up in court. Um, I'm hopeful that someone will bring a lawsuit. There's a number of firms, both Democratic and Republican, that are talking about bringing a lawsuit. Um, this is just, it's Albany gone mad. There's a host of things that they can do to crack down on ethics. But going after people who speak to reporters, which is a constitutionally protected right, um, is just absurd. And we have said we absolutely will not comply to it. We refuse to accept that even as a PR professional, that we're under Jacob's jurisdiction because when the law, when Jacob was established, um, the legislature had to pass it, and it was very clear that um, what what their powers were, and and it was directly related to lobbyists and um, people that lobby elected officials that have direct control over policy making, which a PR professional would be completely outside that. So. Um, stay tuned, but I think anyone that cares about free speech and freedom of the press should be very outraged about this. So what's the specific objectionable part of this? I, I don't want to get to, I don't want to do too much because I, I would love to get to the, uh, to Republican politics, but what is the objection? What is the issue? If all it is, is about disclosure, right? You have to disclose who your clients are. You have to disclose what you're saying. What's the big deal? Why is it more disclosure better? Well, you have to, disclosure is great, disclosure is fine, but what they want you to do is, and and I have done some lobbying in the past, it is a behemoth bureaucracy that I, I had one lobbying client and we had to, the firm that I worked for previously, they had hired a whole separate person just to deal with the compliance, but you, it's not just disclosing who your client is, you have to register every time you have a conversation with a reporter who that reporter was, the date, what type of communication you had with them. I mean, that will just have a chilling effect on the free flow of information. And it's, it's frankly, you know, it, it, 
it, when it's an off-the-record conversation, how, you know, how should you be reporting that to, to the government? And it's something that the government has no business. I mean, I said the other day, I think this is something that, you know, you would see in a dictatorship, not a democracy. You're, you have to register your conversations with members of the press. I mean, where in the United States have you ever heard of such a thing? Oh, it's really unbelievable. And uh, given all that's going on in New York uh, with with the legislature and the like, I don't know if this is the segment of the population we should be talking about. But uh, thanks for thanks for giving us an update on that. Let's get into uh, let's get into Republican politics. Obviously, as a communications professional, as a member of the Republican establishment, I'll call you that because you know you you've worked for establishment candidates as well as the party, Absolutely. and as a Republican woman. Okay, there's all kinds of facets of the Donald Trump story and what's going on with this debate and Fox News to talk about. Uh, I don't even know where to start as far as a question for you. But uh, what what did you ever think in your wildest dreams that this is what we would be looking at? Trump so far ahead in in polls and willing to skip the last debate before the Iowa caucuses. Yeah, no, absolutely not. And I, you know, you could have put me in the camp of the people that never thought that he would actually run to begin with. Um, and you know, look, he is completely rewriting rules. And I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, he views himself as bigger than Fox News. You know, he has a greater reach. He doesn't need to rely on the media the way a lot of other candidates do. And you know, he's used that to his advantage. I personally think it's a huge mistake for him to not participate in the debate. I think it shows a, a strange um, level of, of thin-skinnedness to be, uh, you know, so afraid of a, of a media professional, of a journalist, to, to be questioning him. So, you know, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. Um, if this is presidential politics. You should be able to handle tough questions. You may not like the questions. You may think that some of them, the tone is not right or they're not fair. And, you know, that's, that's your right to say that. But you can't not participate in the process. And I think, frankly, it's insulting to Iowa voters uh, and, and everyone who, every Republican primary voter who is, you know, watching, trying to still decide who their candidate is. You know, I'm personally um, kind of excited to watch the debate without him because I think it's going to change the dynamic, of course, a little bit. You know, now you have him off the stage. So will the candidates still spend their time attacking him, or will they aim their fire more towards Ted Cruz, who is obviously neck and neck with him in a lot of states? So I think it's going to be an interesting dynamic on the stage. I I hope it's a substantive debate. Um, and we get to hear a little bit more from the candidates that maybe haven't had as much airtime because Trump sucks up all the oxygen. Where does, let's just say that Trump wins in Iowa. Uh, there's by no means certainty because it's a caucus system. There's always been surprised in Iowa. He's far ahead in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's far ahead in South Carolina at least polls show, and I hate to say, you know, everybody says, okay, national polls don't mean anything, but the state-by-state polls actually do mean it, do mean something. They don't mean everything uh, in, in primaries. Mm-hmm. Where, at what point, and, and I know we keep saying this, but at what point does the Republican Party uh, have a reckoning, either one way or the other, with Trump? You can't keep ignoring 
the phenomenon. I mean, right now, Jeb Bush is spending $50 million of his PAC money, and he's targeting, he isn't targeting the front runner, he's targeting Marco Rubio, which is, uh, yeah. you know, which in and of itself is, is crazy. All the establishment candidates are targeting each other, meaning Kasich, Christie, Bush, Rubio. So at what point do people re- wake up and say, wow, it's too late? Yeah, it's, it really is a giant um, circular firing squad. Look, a, a poll came out the other day saying 64% of Republican primary voters, um, you know, kind of accepted the fact that Trump will likely be the nominee. I, you know, not to sound obtuse, but I, I do think it's um, a very long race. There are many twists and turns that could happen. Uh, clearly, you know, it, it's a momentum game, right? So you win one state, it helps you get to the next. Um, I don't know what kind of ground game he has already in the South. I think, look, there's some interesting stuff happening on the ground in New Hampshire. You've seen Kasich really kind of surge there. He's competing for second place. Um, so I think, you know, uh, there's still a huge chunk of the Republican primary electorate that is going with another candidate outside of Trump. You know, he's getting he's in the lead, of course, and he's getting the majority, but it's a majority sp- spread out uh, over a dozen candidates, and there's still that 60% that, that wants someone else. So I think it's still anyone's game. Um, I, you know, obviously Jeb is uh, everything he's done has been um, – feckless, frankly, throughout this campaign. So I don't see a huge dynamic changing for him, but I think, you know, a Rubio, a Kasich, uh, Christie probably is uh, is not, you're not going to see much change for him, but I think Carson's probably done. But, you know, it's, it's a long race. I think this will be interesting up until the convention, frankly. We're talking to Jessica Proud for the November team, Republican political consultant, spokeswoman for the New York State Republican Party, uh, a prominent Republican woman here in New York. Uh, Just two things I want to get into. Number one is, from a consultant's point of view, how is it that the decision gets made for Trump to skip this debate? Is this just him being a knee-jerk reaction to what's going on, and he just says, okay, we're done, we're not doing it, or is there some kind of strategy here? And number two, if you want to talk about it, is this seemingly visceral feud with Megyn Kelly, uh, it, the men, man-woman dynamic, it just seems that women seem to get under his skin. Uh, Carly Fiorina did as well. What is it uh, that about you know Trump that he can't seem to handle uh, the criticism from women? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a huge electoral vulnerability, and it's, you know, it, he may have been able to get away with it the first time. I actually thought the first time he attacked her that it, it would have hurt him more. I thought that it was, you know, she's really beloved as one of the conservative voices. She gets the highest ratings on Fox. Um, you know, she's the darling of the right in many respects. So I thought that the first time he went after her that, uh, that he would get some blowback for it, and it didn't. And th- that surprised me. Um, I think he's, you know, as as far as um, from a consultant point of view, you know, Michael, I don't know how much he listens to his team, and that's what scares me. You know, he has this arrogance that, you know, nothing matters. He said it the other day, I could walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot someone, and my supporters would still stay loyal to me. And I think that's true in some regards is a scary thought because, 
you know, he, he's picking all these fights with people, and that, that's a huge vulnerability in the general election. You know, if he he was that way with, you know, Rosie O'Donnell and now Megyn Kelly and Carly Fiorina, you know, you can't just keep insulting people and um, and be viewed as presidential. So I, I do think that if he is going to be the nominee, I, I personally would like to see someone else um, that he's got to kind of cut it out and, and get real and realize that this is not a game of subtraction. Politics is a coalition building. It's bringing people together. And uh, I, I just don't see how you get elected to the highest office, um, leader of the free world, by, by insulting your way there. And I think Chad Bush was right about that. Okay, and last question for you, Jessica, uh, as we close out this segment is, what would a Trump as nominee uh, nominee scenario mean to down-ballot races across New York State specifically? Uh, it, we have going to have potentially a number of competitive congressional races as well as the state Senate up for control uh, in a number yeah. of other races coming up in 2016. What would Trump, as the head of the party, uh, as the standard bearer, mean to some of those races? Well, I will say this. I think he would be a better nominee as far as that goes than Ted Cruz. I think Ted Cruz could have a cataclysmic effect on down-ballot races in New York. Um, however, I think it also depends on what's happening on the Democratic side. I mean, you know, you cannot ignore the fact that Hillary is in serious trouble right now, both in uh, New Hampshire and Iowa, and the email scandal, as much as she tries to dismiss it, is very real and is not going away. So while Hillary, you know, is more popular in New York than other states, you, you know, I don't think we can say definitively at this point that she absolutely will be our nominee. And, you know, if it's Trump versus Bernie Sanders, God knows, maybe Mike Bloomberg's running. So I think there's too many factors to make a real prediction at this point. But my hope is, is that if he is the nominee, that he will settle down, stop the attack, start acting more serious and more presidential. I don't know yet if he's capable of doing that. But I think if he can, then, you know, I don't think it will have so much of a negative impact, but obviously keeping the state Senate and keeping and growing our congressional seats is critically important. Okay, Jessica Proud from the November team, thanks for keeping us updated on presidential politics, the latest absurdities in Albany, and the like, and we'll have you again in the very near future. Thanks, Michael. So great to be with you. And this is Spin Class, and I want to welcome back to the show Jacob Kornbluh from Jewish Insider. If you're not currently subscribing to Jewish Insider, it's kind of inconsistent with listening to the show to not be a subscriber to Jewish Insider. A morning tip sheet covering the gamut of politics and items of Jewish concern. Jacob has been covering the presidential primaries from on the ground in New Hampshire on a daily basis. Jacob, welcome back to Spin Class. Michael, always a pleasure to be on. So, the first in the nation primary of New Hampshire, you're spending a lot of time there, you're on the ground, it's interesting, both on the Republican side and on the Democratic side, with Bernie Sanders now holding a substantial lead in New Hampshire, uh, and Donald Trump holding a substantial lead in New Hampshire. No matter what happens in Iowa, 
uh, New Hampshire seems sometimes to go its own way. So tell us the latest of what you're hearing on the ground, as well as, as, well as you can start, is New Hampshire supposed to be the establishment's revenge on Trump or Cruz? Somebody from the establishment is, has perceived that they were supposed to come out of New Hampshire with the win. I don't know. It's not looking so good right now. When I say the establishment, I'm talking about Rubio, Bush, Kasich, or Christie. Well, if you look at polling, uh, if you put together Rubio, Kasich, um, Jeb, and Christie, you got almost 40% there. So obviously, um, if there would have been a um, unified establishment candidate, we could have seen a different race. However, what I think is people say Iowa doesn't matter, New Hampshire voters don't look at Iowa. In this dynamic where the establishment anti-Trump or more anti-Cruz vote uh, is so split, uh, it will, Iowa will determine who gets ahead of the pack. Uh, for instance, if, if you look at polling today, a poll came out today that Rubio is at 18% in, in Iowa, third place, just six points behind Ted Cruz. Uh, Paul yesterday had him at 16%, seven uh, points behind Cruz. Now, you could argue um, Ruben doesn't have such a, uh, uh, effective, efficient ground game like Ted Cruz, which is true. Uh, uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, if he has a good, and based on his past performances, he has a good performance at the debate tonight, and he, uh, his crowds are growing in Iowa, and people are starting to get fed up between the, on the fight between Cruz and Trump. He could come in at, uh, uh, in in third place, but you know, very close to Ted Cruz. Uh, if Ted Cruz ends up uh, losing Iowa to New Hampshire um, to um, Trump, and then he comes in to New Hampshire with uh, momentum growing, which puts him ahead of the pack at least uh, to win second place uh, behind Trump. So that is something. Uh, you could also argue that John Kasich is, um, has been um, growing a lead, uh, and if you go in, in New Hampshire, I mean, every day uh, he has events, uh, his, his crowds are, 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 are diverse. Uh, they are more independent thinking. They like him. He puts on a good show. But uh, I think uh, it, um, the Iowa caucus will really determine who emerges as the anti-Cruz, anti-Trump uh, candidate. So, Jacob, you're talking to voters on the ground. What are they saying? What are they saying about this race? They're pretty sophisticated voters in New Hampshire. And what are they saying about the circus atmosphere of this, about about uh, about Trump, Cruz, Rubio. I mean, what are they saying about these candidates? I mean, some are frustrated, as we all are. They don't know what um, has landed uh, upon them. But on the other hand, uh, a lot of voters um, are just enjoying the fact that they have uh, an array of candidates to choose from. Uh, you can go to a Jeb Bush event and find Bernie Sanders voters, uh, meaning to say they are uh, fixed on Bernie Sanders, but not 100% because of his liabilities. 
and they want to hear other candidates. On the other hand, you can see people who just, uh, 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 you know, are already in the on the Trump train. They understand that this is a different race uh, that Trump has uh, uh, um, spoken to the fears of people. He's um, um, unpolitical, not politically correct. He's he, he's a different candidate, and he speaks to their fears. He speaks to their anti-establishment voice, and um, that resonates a lot among people who are really sick and tired of the political system. Now, uh, you can always uh, say uh, some people are more educated than others. Uh, there are some people on the ground that are just interested to hear more from Donald Trump while they softly support him, but are not so confident that uh, uh, he's really a substantive candidate, that he has knowledge of the policy. So I think while he has a, a lead over the other candidates, um, it also uh, 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 it will come down uh, to, to uh, what people think uh, is their best choice in either winning the general election or touch their heart. And um, uh, in my view, uh, John Kasich has done a tremendous job in that aspect of uh, seeming to be a candidate that could win the general and has a substantive um, touch on the issues. Uh, Chris Christie um, and Jeb Bush are kindly, you know, struggling for third place behind Rubio and Kasich. Uh, I mean, they. I would have. I would have um, written the Jeb comeback three weeks ago, but I don't see it coming right now. So you pointed out beforehand, if you take the four establishment candidates, or maybe even if you take a fifth in uh, Carly Fiorino, who's polling at about 3 4%, you put them all together, you beat Trump. But of course, that's not what's going on. And nobody seems to be walking out and saying, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall on my sword in order to protect the country or protect the country from, you know, from the excesses of Trump and Cruz. Um, that's just editorializing. So what... Nobody's dropping out, so clearly you're going to have a situation. Do you see, I mean, when, where do you see the field as far as New Hampshire, uh, you know, changing? Is does it change in the week between Iowa and New Hampshire? Uh, it could change. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, if you know, if Jeff comes in uh, in sixth place in Iowa and does not have the momentum in New Hampshire, and he comes into fifth place in New Hampshire. I don't see him going forward. I don't see his voters, his uh, his team saying, we got this, you know, let's continue. But John Kasich, if he doesn't exceed expectations, if he comes into fourth place in, in New Hampshire or he falls behind Jeb and Christie, I see him dropping out. If Christie comes in in eighth place in, in, in Iowa and... Rubio and Kasich are the ones that people look up to to be in second and third place. I don't see him continuing. Now, they could drag on to South Carolina and the SEC primaries, 
I don't see where they're winning there. I hear you. Jacob, we are actually, I'm just being told we're out of time right now. Got to wrap up this segment. I want to thank you for the on-the-ground reporting from uh, New Hampshire, and thanks for joining us. We're going to have you again in the very uh, near future as we go through this primary saga or circus, whatever you want to call it. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Always a pleasure, Michael. Have a good day. And uh, just to wrap up, Spin Class, a great uh, op-ed in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. If you haven't read it, you absolutely must. It talks about the fact that the U.S. Virgin Islands voted in 1938 to accept Jewish refugees. And it was Secretary of State Breckenridge Long who actually was so anti-Semitic, he couldn't even allow Jews to come into the U.S. Virgin Islands. I'd never heard about the story. Incredible story. If you think about it, Harold Ix, his father... Uh, who was the Interior Secretary, Secretary of the Interior at the time. He was a hero of the story. Harold Ix is still a fixture of Democratic Party politics. An incredible story uh, about uh, politics and bureaucracy in the U.S. government when it came to saving Jews uh, before and during the Holocaust. They must read in the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class, sponsored by the S4 Group. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks here on the Nachum Siegel Network. 